right, welcome to Season 3, Episode 5, once again being recorded from a hotel room, and I do apologize for all the background noise in the last couple of episodes, and what will be in this episode as well. Good times, bad times. You want to start off? Yeah, sure. And I'm going to start off with a, a bit of a long one because um, I think it was one of the one of the biggest stories this past week was uh, everything that's going on with um, the company GameStop, the website Reddit, and the stock market. Which is an odd combination. And, uh, yeah, it is an odd combination. And uh, it took me a while to figure out exactly what was going on. And there were so many updates and changes and pieces to it that uh, it's hard to summarize. So I'm just going to read directly from a CBC article here because I think it does a better job than I ever could of explaining exactly what happened and what was going on. So it says, Shares in a U.S. retail chain that hasn't made any money in years have risen by 1,000% in less than two weeks, wiping out billions of dollars from two Wall Street investment funds in the process. The sentence above makes little sense at first blush, but it nonetheless, but it is nonetheless an apt description of the saga currently underway surrounding shares in GameStop. GameStop is a retail chain with about 5,000 locations across North America, which, as its name suggests, sells video games and game-related accessories. I think it also owns EB Games, and there's still a few EB Games around. Uh, like many retailers, its business has been under pressure for several years now because of a shift away from physical stores and towards online selling, which GameStop currently does very little of. Then the pandemic hit, exacerbated those problems, and sent the stock down to multi-year lows. In the early days of COVID-19, the company's shares were changing hands at around $4 US a share. They hit almost $400 on Wednesday for no good reason other than being caught in the middle of an epic battle between a couple of million online Davids who share stock tips on a profanity-riddled message boards and the bespoke-suited stuffy goliaths of Wall Street investment funds. Wall Street has been betting against GameStop shares for well over a year now as investors known as short sellers have profited from the company's misery, driving the price down from around $25 in 2017 to around $5 for most of the last year. To be fair, short selling doesn't drive the price down. What drives the price down is bad sales. Yes, and then short sellers profit off of that. Yeah, they're, they're assuming that the company's going to not do well because the market's moving to online games versus physical games. Yes. It just the, the, that wording made it sound like the short selling drove the price down, and that's that's not the way it works. Yes, no. I think there's a description of what exactly what short selling is a little bit later. Oh yeah, no, this is it. Uh, unlike unlike long term stock owners, short sellers make money on falling shares by borrowing the shares from existing shareholders, selling them, and then buying them back to replace the shares they borrowed at a lower price later, and pocketing the difference. As long as the price goes down, short sellers make money, but when the stock goes up, short sellers have to buy into a rising market, which adds to the buying pressure, which pushes prices up even more in a vicious cycle for the short. That's known as a short squeeze, and what we're seeing right now may be the most dramatic one in history. So the short sellers' best laid plans for GameStop started to go off the rails a few months ago when some members of a prominent Reddit community called Wall Street Bets saw an opportunity to make some money and teach Wall Street a lesson in the process. 
Well, many members of the subreddit of uh, do-it-yourself investors generally think GameStop's core business of selling video games is a promising one. A small number of them saw an added reason to buy in because they caught wind of growing short interests in the stock. If enough buyers buy into a company and refuse to sell, that will drive the price of the shares higher. That, in turn, forces short sellers to fuel the price rise against their will by making them buy at ever higher prices to cover their bets. The harder it is to find a stock to cover the short, the more expensive it will get until momentum shifts. So yeah, a bunch of people on these Reddit communities made a ton of money by by investing and, and holding their stocks and not selling to the short sell, uh, stock sellers, forcing it to go up. Research firm S3 calculates that short sellers have lost $5 billion on GameStop so far this year. Keeping in mind, we're not even done the first month of the year. Now, this sort of was added on to when two short sellers amid this big thing happening, Andrew Left and Melvin Capital, which I think are the names of companies, not people. Um, it would be a, be a funny last name for a stock market trader. Yeah. <laughs> So they admitted defeat. A pair of professional investment firms that placed big bets that money-losing video games retailer GameStop stock will crash have largely abandoned their positions. One of the two major investors that surrendered, Citroen Research, I guess that's the company name, acknowledged Wednesday in a YouTube video that it unwound the majority of its bet that GameStop would fall. Andrew Left, who runs Citroen, I guess it is a last name. Anyway, Andrew Left, who runs Citroen, said it took a loss 100% to do so but that does not change his view that GameStop is a loser. And then Melvin Capital is also exiting GameStop, with manager Gabe Plotkin telling CNBC that the hedge fund was taking a significant loss. He denied rumors that the hedge fund will fail. And that's what's really amazing to me, is that even if the hedge funds don't fail, the fact that it's a possibility that people are even floating about is incredible, that people off of reddit average people were able to do this anyway so they took out two of the big sharks but then a lot of people were doing it on this app called Robinhood that allows you to short trade shares and Robinhood, as well as td banking and a few other brokerages moved to limit trading on gamestop to put uh, an end to this they put restrictions on trading in the company's shares which allowed people to sell but not buy, essentially. And this has happened... How does that work? The biggest one. Um, if nobody can buy, how can you sell? Yeah, I can't find... I'm looking for the uh, exact... That's a good point. I'm looking for the exact what they did, because all it says right here is restrictions. Yeah, I think they just uh, limited the number that you could buy and sell and stuff like that. Maybe they... Yeah, maybe something like that. I, I had read this article before, but I can't find through. But it wasn't just GameStop that they limited, because this has sort of happened. GameStop was the most dramatic, but this happened with a few other companies, including BlackBerry, Bed Bath & Beyond, and uh, Nokia. All, and, um, all really horrible companies on paper. Yeah. I mean, I have a soft spot for GameStop. AMC was another one of them. Can you even buy games for these new systems? Isn't it everything download? Now? No, you can buy. You can buy games. But 90%, you just download it on your Xbox or your PS4 or PS5 or whatever, right? If you want. It can be either. Yeah. But the exact numbers, BlackBerry was up 500% since Christmas. AMC was up 300% on Wednesday. Bed Bath & Beyond was up 250% since December. And Tootsie Roll 
Atlas was seeing outsized gains, went up 53% on Wednesday. I wish they did it with Cineplex. I bought Cineplex a while ago. Uh, Cineplex is succeeding, though. It was, it was down yeah. because of the COVID. They're all down because of COVID. Oh, yeah, that's true. Anyway, that's sort of that. Uh, I, I think it's cooling down because of the restrictions that apps and, and things are placing on it. I mean, it's, but, it's borderline illegal. It's market manipulation. If rich people did it, if rich people did it, you would be up in arms. Maybe. Possibly. You're, you're quite possibly right, except I... Rich people do it all the time, and nobody cares. But it's only as soon as the poor people, or <coughs> pardon me, middle-income people start to do it, that the apps and the big companies, the rich, start to take issue with it, and they move to limit it. The other thing um, is these these hedge funds aren't necessarily strictly owned by rich people. It could have people's pensions in there. It could have a lot of stuff in there. A lot of people could be hurt by this. A lot of poor and, and middle-income people could be hurt by this. Yes, I, 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 I know. And, I mean, I think it's all the problems. That's the problem with the current system is it's hard to work against it without potentially getting some people in the crossfire because it's almost like the rich companies where you have the poor people and, and middle-income people who they've roped in as human shields. And but, plus, uh, if, if, that, if those people... The people that that did this, the Reddit group, you know, let's say they invested five grand in it and it went up a thousand percent. They're now rich people because that's five million dollars. Yeah, no, apps. Uh, yeah, well, I, I would say they're richer, but I wouldn't. When I think of rich people, I think of, you know, millionaires and billionaires. Mm, um, I'd like to have five million dollars. I think I would be rich if I had five million dollars. Uh, in today's world, I don't know. It's I mean, enough to retire on. Well, then we need another word because there's a huge difference between five million and five billion. Yeah, those, absolutely. Those two things are not equal. No. And so I don't think you can call both of them rich. There's rich, and then there's uber rich or something. Yeah. Either way, it, I mean, when stock when when these big companies manipulate the market and they lose a bunch of money, we bail them out. I just I I, I do see. I think it's a bit of a double standard because if this was companies or the rich doing it, people wouldn't. Like, there wouldn't be a eye turned. There wouldn't be any movement to stop it. The well, because people don't know. It. they don't. The rich people don't talk about it on Reddit. They do it more yeah. subtly. Yeah, ex- exactly. So I, I, I enjoyed it as a bit of a, you know, taste your own medicine type of moment. And it sort of just shows that, you know, as a group, the masses do have the power because there's just so much more of us. But the top will do anything they can to limit us from realizing that that's what Karl Marx wrote about over a hundred years ago yeah I mean there's part of me that enjoys the story but ultimately it's 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 not something that we should, that should be encouraged it's it is it it's the definition of market manipulation they decided to make this stock worth more despite what it was worth well despite you know to take the like I hear this a lot especially from conservatives and such but what happened to the free market but you can't it's never really been a free market just just like if you take the other you know you can't have insider trading either if you know something about the company you're not allowed to to share to trade in it right it's rules of the market it's not a free market there are rules there's always been rules and and there should be rules and there should be more rules and there should be stricter rules but i guess my point is that to everybody who are who argues 
in like that this needs to be stopped, but then turns around and criticizes government regulations on the quote free market. Bit a bit of a hypocrite. Anybody? Not I can't think of anybody off the top of my head, but there are definitely politicians on the right wing who I think their hypocrisy can be exposed through that. Yeah, for sure. Uh, there does need. I agree. There needs to be tough rules on this because stuff like this it shouldn't happen. GameStop is a, is going to be closed. It's not gonna right. It's it's it's. It's a, it's a, it's, it's like um, Radio Shack, you know. It's, it's yeah. just, it's not going to last. <laughs> or Blockbuster, right? Nobody rents videos anymore because it's all online. So the, the people that shorted are right. This company will shut down. Yeah, probably one day, unless there's some big shift. Yeah, the internet breaks. Well, there's also plenty of people like me who much prefer to have a hard game than to download it. And yeah. that becomes a growing opinion. If people get frustrated with online games, because there's plenty to be frustrated with, they may turn back to places like GameStop. Yeah, the online games are just going to get better and better as internet gets faster and faster around the world, right? It's... Or, or GameStop could somehow alter their business model where they do sell stuff online. Yeah, I mean, you're right. They can do something like that. But if it's if it sticks as it is, it's it's doomed, I think. Yeah. Anyway, that was a, a long what I consider uh, mostly on the good time side of things opening. But but trucking along, GM has announced that it will invest $27 billion U.S. in electric and autonomous vehicles in the next five years, a 35% increase over plans made before the pandemic. It will offer 30 all-electric models worldwide by the middle of the decade. By the end of 2025, of its U.S. models will be battery electric vehicles. GM said Thursday that it will source 100% renewable energy to power its U.S. sites by 2030 and global sites by 2035, which is five years faster than a previously announced uh, global goal. And it has the goal of making all new light-duty vehicles fully electric within 14 years. It's also working with uh, with others, including the Environmental Defense Fund, to build out the necessary infrastructure to power its electric vehicles and to promote their use, which I think is great. Yeah, they, they still need to work on batteries, but but yeah. Yeah, and, and I mean, it's it's similar to what you said with internet gaming. I mean, the battery technology is only going to get better. They have, you know, 14 years of time if they're going to meet their goals to improve the batteries and stuff. But this is the type of movement, if we're not going to elect progressive governments that enact good environmental policy, then this is the type of movement we need to see in the free market if we want to live the next, and throughout the next century. Yeah, good for GM. Yeah, I, mean, I was very impressed. I was very impressed to see that. So I don't often praise private companies, but good for GM. A Quebec Superior Court judge is forcing the province to reword several sections of the Civil Code of Quebec because they discriminate against trans and non-binary people. Justice Gregory Moore invalidated several articles of the Civil Code, including the one that prevents a person from changing the sex listed on their act uh, of birth to reflect their gender identity. On their, on their act of birth? Is that a birth certificate? Says, I imagine it must be your birth certificate. On their act of birth? Maybe it's called something yeah. different. Maybe that's a lost in translation translation thing yeah. listed on their act of birth. <laughs> I did. I, I I just noticed that as I was reading through, and I was like, "That's weird." Because <laughs> really, you have very little to do with it. It's not your act. <laughs> that's true. That's I've long thought that it's interesting to celebrate the day I did nothing. Uh, 
According to the judge, the limitations of the civil code deprive trans and non-binary people, quote, of the dignity and the equality that they are owed. The judge gave the province until the end of the year to amend the civil code. And, uh, I mean, that feels like something that's long overdue. Yeah, I'm surprised it's starting in Quebec, but... I feel like it's not starting in Quebec. I feel like it's ending in Quebec. Oh, everybody else has done it? I think so. Oh, okay. I, uh, it's... I mean, I know in Ontario, at least, you can change, I'm pretty sure, and in a few other provinces. I think even in Alberta, you can. You can change what's on uh, several documents. But uh, Quebec is, it's either way ahead of the game or way behind the game on the uh, civil rights issues. And there's really no in-between. Yeah. It really depends on the issue. They were also the last province to give women the vote, which I always thought was interesting. But yeah, that's good. Good for, I'm, I'm glad. It's a big victory in Quebec, so good. A few weeks ago, I mentioned that uh, Meng Wanzhou was looking to have her bail loosened because she was worried about COVID with all the guards. And that trial happened this past week, or I don't know if you call it a trial or appeal bid or whatever it is. But the judge rejected her request, saying that the security is the minimum required to keep her from fleeing the country. So he thinks that she's going to run if given the chance? Yeah. And I say, I kind of wish there was more than the minimum, you know? Like, it would suck if, after all this, she ran away. Yeah, I don't think she's... I don't know. I'd, I'd be... Well, whatever they, they do in the security, I, I'd, which is good. I think it'd be hard for her to get out. Like, everybody knows what she looks like. Everybody knows what she looks like. She can't just hop on a plane and leave. Yeah, I feel like the Chinese government could smuggle her out if they really wanted to. Maybe, but they could probably do that regardless of the security, so... That's true. Fair enough. Um... <laughs> This was interesting, and I put this in good times, even though I don't think it has good intentions. But Facebook wants the Canadian government to regulate them more. They say it doesn't make sense for different platforms to have different regulations regarding what people are allowed to post. So Parliament should set those rules. And I think that amid all these calls for them to limit what can be posted and the rise of you know the far right and racism and all those things... I think they want that problem dealt with without having to take the blame from the other side. I think it does make sense that different platforms allow different things. Like, it's up to the people that run the platform. And then if it's if it's hate speak, maybe it'll be shut down or whatever. But why not? Why, why wouldn't it be up to the platform? Well, I think what Facebook is arguing is that it doesn't make sense if we lock down, you know, if we have stricter limits on what constitutes hate speech and then tumblr or twitter don't us locking it down has no effect because all those people are just going to spread their ideas on another app but if, if you want to actually deal with this problem there needs to be rules that cover every platform and i'm sure there is there already is there already is. They're asking for... There already is rules. Stricter. Yeah, but there already is rules. If yeah. you want to make your rules stricter, go ahead. Why should the government yeah, make the them... Like, this is... Why should the government step in here? I don't see any reason why the government should... Well, go ahead and make your rules stricter. Think, Great. Good for you. I think, I think there's reason for the government to step in and set out stricter rules for companies to follow to limit, you know, a rise in hate speech and conspiracy theories... But I think the reason Facebook wants it is because, like I said, they don't want to take the blowback from, say, the right, who would be more, I guess, censored. 
Yeah, well, I, I, I just think the rules already exist, and if you, if you want to do a better job, good for you, go for it. But for the most part, the government shouldn't be saying what you can and can't say. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's a fine, tricky, tricky line, and it's hard to know where to fall on it. There's something interesting, and I, I, I didn't quite fully understand this story, so I was reluctant to mention it, but Australia is pissing off Facebook right now because they want to make Facebook pay companies that they take news from that Facebook promotes. They want to make Facebook pay companies what? I don't know. That's the thing. I was struggling to understand it. I read several articles. But, so what I understood is that Facebook takes news from a company, a news company, and then they release it as Facebook News. Okay. And they don't necessarily, and they maybe credit the company, but they don't have to pay the company under the current rules. Right. And it's like that in Canada too. It's not just this weird thing in Australia. So Australia is looking to set rules that would make Facebook pay the news companies that they get their stories from. Because does, Facebook does, doesn't have like a news division. But do they? Does Facebook? itself put up news or do people share news articles on Facebook? Well, I think Facebook, I think Facebook has a news section. Well, that's probably a problem. They probably shouldn't. It's not, (laughs) it's not a news, Um, it's not, it's a social network. Yeah. Yeah. I I don't know. I'll I'll do more research and I'll try to get back on that next week. But, uh, because it was a tad confusing. If they want to do news, then it has to be something completely separate, and then do your news. And if you do, if you're taking a story, I don't know how does news normally work. You know, if Reuters quote or Reuters quotes a, a CBC article, does CBC get paid? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. I'll, I'll look more into it because they shouldn't be any week. different than any anybody else. Yeah, I agree. And then lastly, the federal government has announced that January 29th will become a National Day of Remembrance for the 2017 Quebec City mosque attack in a move to honor the victims and express solidarity with the survivors. The day will also be used to promote action against Islamophobia, uh, the Ministry of Canadian Heritage said in a statement on Thursday. Islamophobia is a concrete and daily reality for Muslim communities everywhere. We have an obligation to remember the victims and responsibility to combat discrimination and continue to build a more inclusive Canada. Yeah, uh, fine. Yeah, I think that's, uh, if they actually, you know, take action to do that kind of thing, then that'll be great. But if it's just another poster day, then... Listen, I mean, it's just good. That's all it's going to be. I mean, most provinces don't even give you November 11th off, so it's not like it's going to be a holiday to remember or anything. And Yeah, but it's the same as uh, there's... Oh, God, I feel horrible because I don't even remember what day of the year it is. But there's a day when we remember the Ecole, Ecole Polytechnique shooting, and and uh, it's normally marked by a moment of remembrance, uh, at least in Parliament, if not you know, in daily people's lives. And it's not nothing. Yeah, no, that's what'll happen. It'll be something similar to that, I'm sure. Yeah. Anyway, that's what I got for good news. I just have, I just have, oh, do you want to do all yours? Do your good times, do your good times. I just have one. I'm keeping all my stuff relatively short because you put in a lot of effort this week, so. I know, I shouldn't, I I said to you yesterday, I I shouldn't put in advanced effort because then I end up with a lot. You can. No, it's good. You can. You maybe just need to edit it a bit, like the top two or four things. (laughs) (laughs) 
Anyway, I was I was reading about a uh, a Jewish man named Eric Schwann, who was originally in a, uh, lived in France, I guess, during World War II, and and made his way out of there as the Germans took it over, and recently passed away at ninety some odd years old, and he remembered the people that saved him, a village that saved them, and he left in his will. I guess he died a, a relatively wealthy man. And he left in his will uh, to this village in France. He left the village two million euros because of they helped him during the war. And it just is a nice. I was going to put it in in uh, closer to mine. Yeah, but uh, eh, it goes in either spot. Yeah, uh, yeah. I that is lovely. That is yeah, very nice. It's just a nice story. And hopefully the village can do something good with that money. Yeah, yeah. I want, I'm, I'm wondering. I'd like. Hopefully they follow up on it because I would like to know. You know, hopefully it doesn't just fill some potholes. Like, it would be nice if they did, like, a memorial park or or something. Something that's lasting. Yeah. Not just salary for the mayor or something. Yeah. Although, I mean, if it's a pothole-ridden city, then uh, that might be a significant improvement in people's lives. That's true. That's true. All right. Um, Your bad, bad times? times? Yeah. Yeah, I got a few... So, uh, do you know what the doomsday clock is? Yeah, it used to be used a lot more when, when uh, like, on the Cold War times. Yeah. So, the doomsday clock, they I think they update it now once a year in January or something like that. They Or at least once a year. So, they just did their update, and they are keeping it at 1 minute and 40 seconds or 100 seconds to midnight. Now, for anybody who doesn't know, the clock, which was introduced in 1947 is a symbolic representation of how close humanity is to destroying civilization. And midnight is the destruction of civilization. It is maintained by a group of experts within, quote, the Bulletin, which is a nonprofit organization tracking man-made threats. That sounds um, ominous. It is. A group of experts within the Bulletin. <laughs> yeah, okay. So this is the closest it's ever been to midnight. It was set at 100 seconds last year. And they cite climate change as probably the biggest threat of what's keeping things so close to midnight. And that the only reason they didn't actually move it closer to midnight is because of there was some progress. They said not enough to move it back, but not enough, but enough that it doesn't move forward. And one of the big things was Joe Biden being elected. Yeah, it's a bit... If this is the closest it's ever been, then didn't they sort of miss the boat? Didn't this group of ex experts sort of miss the boat on climate change a number of years ago? Well, well, yeah, let's let's keep reading here. It was in 1991 at the end of the Cold War. It was set to 17 minutes to midnight, which is the furthest back it's ever been. And um, I, I don't know. Like, I don't actually know the correct answer to the question. But it's possible, you know, 1991, they saw it as a threat, but thought there was, you know, more than enough time to deal with it. And there was more, there was less climate denialism because it wasn't, and arguably that's just because it wasn't as big of a deal. But, you know, the 90s, uh, Al Gore was big on the political scene, eventually vice president. And so there was more people in higher offices taking it seriously. Newt Gingrich was, you know, in a time of his life where he was willing to advocate for a carbon tax it it feels it just feels like as, as long as i can remember climate change has been like oh we have to act now we can't wait and yet everybody keeps waiting so it just feels like this group of experts is maybe 
you know, not all that expert. Maybe. But that's, that's, I guess it's good it didn't get closer. It wasn't close. I thought it was closer in the Cold War days. I thought it was under a minute, but I guess you're saying this is as close as it's ever been? Yeah. I have yeah, one more question. Why do you have a dartboard on your fridge? Oh. You well, shouldn't throw darts at your fridge. It's not It's not a dartboard. It's just like a little target with some points, and I throw magnets at it. Oh, okay. Mostly they just hit the fridge and fall to the ground, but sometimes they stick, and it's fun. Cool. Anyway, sorry, moving on in bad times. Yes, on that note, nine Chinese miners were found dead in a mine collapse that we were talking about <laughs> it's a last odd week. segue. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah, last week I mentioned I think ten miners were found alive, rescued. Now they've found nine more who uh, have passed, so, you know, we're, we're in net positive still. Uh, but one person still remains missing. It probably doesn't bode well for that one person, but... Probably not. Uh, I think I think that one person is probably, unfortunately, dead. But, I mean, there's still hope, I suppose. Yeah. And uh, I think they'll probably keep looking till they find them. Yeah. Anyway, Moderna is going to be sending 20 to 25% less doses of the COVID-19 vaccine than expected in February. Trudeau said the Moderna disruptions are tied to, quote, certain concerns around the manufacturing process. This temporary delay doesn't change the fact that we will still receive 2 million doses of the Moderna vaccine before the end of March, as we've been saying for months. We know that this is something that we're going to have to keep watching very closely. And this is after Pfizer was reducing their shipment by 80%, which we talked about a week or two ago. Yeah. So that's not good. Is it the same reason? Is it because they're upgrading a facility somewhere so that they can make more? We don't know exactly. All we know is what Trudeau said, certain concerns around the manufacturing process. Oh, well, listen, make sure you're getting it right. Like, you don't want somebody to spit in it or something, so. Yeah, but it does exacerbate a problem where we are 13th worldwide as of January 29th when it comes to vaccinations per 100 people. The lowest we've been is 20th. Now, these, these numbers are a single dose, so it doesn't necessarily mean these are vaccinated people. Um, it could just be people with one one of the shots of the two needed. But, uh, yeah. But where it stands right now, out of 100 people, so per 100 people, Israel is in a far first place with 53.81 per 100 people. United Arab Emirates pulls up a distant second with 30.4. And then just notice this drastic drop. The UK with 13.05, Bahrain with 9.98, the US with 8.42, Serbia 6.33, Malta 5.85, Denmark 4.26, Romania 3.36, Poland 3.02, Italy 3 on the dot, Germany 2.77, and finally Canada with 2.48. In terms of the G7 countries, we are ahead of only France, which has 1.99, and Japan, who hasn't vaccinated anybody yet. They haven't started. Well, why hasn't Japan started? Um, because they're going to produce all of their vaccines nationally. Oh, okay. And they haven't produced any yet. That's not good no, for them. I, and it's pathetic for Canada. 2.48 per hundred is, is sad and speaks, yeah, speaks to the plan. I mean, obviously, Israel is just blowing everybody away with over 50%. So, and, you know, that's impressive, but maybe it's unrealistic for us. But, I mean, the UK with 13, USA with 
Um, I mean, hell, we're behind countries like Bahrain, Serbia, Malta, Romania, and Poland. Yeah. It is kind of pathetic. And I don't know if it's the federal government's fault or the provincial government's fault, honestly, or if it's just incompetence all around. Uh, probably a little incompetence all around and probably a little each waiting for the other to take the lead. I, I think healthcare is provincial, bottom line. So they are the ones that need to have the plan to distribute. But maybe federal, maybe the feds need to take over. It's Maybe this is a good stepping stone into a federal health care system. I mean, that's what we need. It's absurd that the province you live in in this country, and I've long said this, can drastically affect the type of health care you're getting. If you're Canadian, you should be entitled to the same type of health care from Victoria to Yellowknife to St. John's, Newfoundland. Yeah, yeah. And even those north of Yellowknife, but yeah. Yeah, <laughs> no, nobody north. People in Anubik, screw them. Yeah. Who cares? <laughs> the uh, I don't know um, if you I don't know if you heard, but I'm sure the microphone picked up. This the uh, the hotel I'm in is very busy this weekend. I think my people a lot, a lot of people must be staycationing, and this place um, has a pool. So uh, just a whole trove of kids just ran by the room <laughs> and made a lot of noise. But uh, that's funny. But anyway, that's what I have for bad news. What do you got? All right. Well, I was reading in Louisiana, a cemetery declined to bury a black deputy sheriff due to a whites-only property. And I checked the date to see if it was 1950-something, and it wasn't. It's a new story. Oh, my God. How? That, that can't be legal. You wouldn't think so. I, I then, then again, it is Louisiana. Yeah, but, I mean, did he really care once everybody's dead? Like, once you're dead, does it matter? Can't we just get over it at that point? Uh, once we're dead, we're all mushy. Yeah. Doesn't matter. And uh, this one could have gone in political, but it's more of a bad time to me because I'm hoping it won't be political. But two Ohio state representatives want June 14th, which is currently Flag Day, to be renamed President John Donald J. Trump Day. Well, that's impressive that they found something stupider than Flag Day. I <laughs> I, I hope it doesn't happen. Uh, uh, this is something that doesn't need to be celebrated in any sort of recognition in any way whatsoever. Honestly, I don't know what Ohio's composed of right now, but if the... Uh, I'm sure um, it'll die. It's two backbenchers, I think, but still. Honestly, if it's... If the Republicans have control of the Senate and the House of Representatives, which wouldn't surprise me, I think that it could pass those. But uh, Mike DeWine, who's the governor of Ohio, uh, and is Republican, but he was also a pretty decent Trump critic and, and showed uh, a decent amount of competence with the COVID-19, which, you know, automatically separates him from his Republican colleagues. And so uh, I, I think he probably would, wouldn't sign it into law. But uh, we'll see. One more. I, I just was... Remembering the uh, in in L.A. Dodger Stadium is being used for uh, a massive vaccination site, so that's how they get their numbers up to you know eight point two. Is they have these big places where they can vaccinate tons of people at a time. Yeah, that's good. Maybe the Canadian politicians should take notice. But anyway, you know what's happening in Rogers Center right now? Get people in there and get them vaccinated. But that's beside the point. Anti-vaxxers protesting in front of the stadium actually made it close for a while. So. Not only do they not want to vaccinate themselves, they want to stop others from getting vaccinated as well, which which goes against exactly what they are protesting. Yeah, choice, the choice. choice. 
Yeah. So I don't understand. I don't like. Do you not see the hypocrisy of what you're doing right now? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's a lot of how the anti-vax started with the choice thing. But there's probably plenty of them now who you know aren't even worried about the choice or the mercury or the whatever. But you know, they're worried about the microchips and the. I haven't seen uh, anything about microchips lately. Mostly, people are worried because people have people that are taught died. People died that took it. Oh well. But. Anyway, they're stupid. And if I believed in some sort of population control or, you know, curing the lowest of the population, this pandemic would have been a great way to do absolutely no work and still separate them. And uh, being like, all right, round up the protesters. We know what we don't need. There's a kind of hush all over the world. Tonight, all over the world, you can hear the sounds. All right, all over the world. Uh, you better go first, and then I'll add in what uh, if I have anything after you're done. All right. Well, I will open up with a story from Myanmar, where Australia, Britain, Canada, and the European Union and the United States, uh, along with 12 other nations, have urged the Myanmar military to, quote, adhere to democratic norms. After the military questioned the legitimacy of a recent election that international observers deemed free and fair, this is Myanmar's second ever election deemed free and fair since the end of the military junta rule in 2011. Under Myanmar's constitution, 25% of the seats in uh, Myanmar's two chambers, and that's 25% in each chamber, are reserved for military appointees. Now, in this past election that they just had a few months ago, the National League for Democracy, which was the ruling party before and is the most democratic party of any of the parties that run in Myanmar, won 60% in one chamber and 58% in the other. So two just straight out majorities. They don't have to work with any other parties. The uh, National League for Democracy promised in the last election and won on this to reduce the amount of uh, power that the military has in parliament and over government affairs, then now uh, lawmakers are preparing for a military coup. Uh, there was one who spent several years in prison under the military junta who said he's packed his bags and if they come for him, he's ready to go. Back to jail. Yeah. Do you need to pack your bags to go to jail? Don't they just give you an orange jumpsuit? I don't know. I'm not how we're going to but uh, yeah, it's looking like uh, it's looking likely that there will be a military coup. The, the military sent vans to the uh, anti-government vans with like big billboards and stuff to the courts after the courts upheld the election. The government has the police on their side, and the police actually turned back those military vans. But I feel like if it comes to blows, military versus police, military is going to win. Unless they get help from these countries that say, you know, keep it. Yeah, but. When was the last time we stepped in to stop a military coup? I don't remember. Yeah, it doesn't happen. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, I hope it doesn't happen, but we'll see. It, it, it is looking likely. Um, the government said that if the military comes at them with force, they will not respond with force. I think because they know they can't win, and so they don't want to put people's lives on the line. Yeah. But I Hold generally on. think it's hard. So I guess they've been in a democracy for about 10 years now. It's harder to reestablish a dictatorship after you've been a democracy. Generally, people yeah. are used to having more power, you know? Yeah. Um, so we'll keep an eye on that. I'm sure I'll, we'll see updates if stuff happens. 
Poland has seen a second night of major protests uh, that are reminiscent of the BLM protests in the UK and the US after uh, a far-reaching abortion ban take, has takes effect in Poland, which already had one of the most restrictive policies when it comes to abortion in the in in the European Union. Expanded it uh, this past month, expanded their restrictions, and especially in Warsaw, but uh, across the country, women and and supporters of the women's movement. Uh, took to the streets and uh, like I said if you look at the photos it, it looks a lot like the the heavy nights of BLM protest in the US which is good if it, it's bizarre though I mean they've already had like it's it's sort of like the taps already off and they just sort of tightened it a little bit more it's just surprised that they caused so much uh, anarchy it, it's just well, I, I think it's because they've had a restrictive abortion policy for, you know, decades. Yeah. So maybe a lot of these people that are protesting were maybe born into the country with a restrictive abortion policy. So they were working peacefully to loosen it, and then this tightening made them go to the streets. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. Because you, would, you generally don't get nights of angry protests randomly over a 50-year-old policy. You know? No, I, I know, yeah, and the policies, it, it's very, I know, they're very, very religious, and it's very, it was, it's very restrictive, so it's just, like, it was almost, it was almost impossible before, now it's more impossible, yeah. like, it doesn't feel like there's this massive change that, but, I mean, yeah, good for them for doing it, it's just a bizarre, I don't know, it just, it just feels like not, not, maybe I miss. Maybe maybe I don't understand the new law, and it is a massive change. It just doesn't feel like a massive change to erupt these big protests. Yeah, but good for well, them. We'll, I mean, see. they probably yeah. should have been protesting the old law, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. We'll see if anything comes of it. I, I doubt it, but uh, it's good to make their voices heard. In the UK, Gordon Brown, who was British Prime Minister from two thousand seven two thousand ten, a member of the Labour Party says that if the UK does not reform the way it's governed, it could become a failed state. He claims that people outside of London feel unrepresented, especially in Scotland, and that the phrase, whoever in London thought of that, is a common refrain. He offered no suggestions on how to reform, but said that something needs to be done. And I have to say, it reminded me of sort of the, some complaints you hear in Canada, you know, that uh, if you're not in Ontario, then you're not uh, represented in government. It is reminiscent, yeah. It's interesting. I, I don't... Although, yeah, I mean, Ontario and Quebec. Quebec has a ton of seats, too. Yeah, but uh, Ontario has twice the amount of Quebec. Is it really? And then... then yeah. Oh. Well, it also probably has close to twice the population. Yeah, no, that's the thing. It's all based on population. Honestly, if people in the West wanted their voices heard stronger and more equally, they should advocate for more proportional representation. But they constantly vote for the people who are most against proportional representation. Yeah, although does that, does proportional, I mean people in the West, just say in general are more conservative so does proportional representation help the conservatives in Ontario? Yes. Yeah? I think so, because it, if I mean if you look at the numbers, if you look at percentages, Alberta voted more conservative than Saskatchewan but Saskatchewan in 2019 Saskatchewan has more conservative representation than Alberta does. And it would make, make it so that conservatives in the 905 and in Toronto get more of a voice, and then the West's conservatives is more supported. 
Yeah, except for, well, yeah, overall it probably hurts the conservatives, though. It does. You, I mean, it does. I won't deny that. It will hurt the conservatives overall, but it would give the West more support, or at least more seeming support from the East. All the, um, their, their 20% fewer seats could have more support from the other side of the country. Yeah. Now, my, do you know there's, there's, there, are, there are some countries that have two capitals? Did you know this? Not that I can think of. There's, there's not many. There's a few that have two capitals. I can't think of them off the top of my head. My radical suggestion is that Canada should make Calgary its second capital. Uh, what? And, what do they just arm wrestle when they have differing, differing opinions? No, 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 no. It, it's, I mean, the the seat. It's still one government, but they spend. My suggestion is they spend four years in each capital, but it's divided so that it's two years per term. So say you start a term and you have your first two years. What happens? In Calgary, what happens in a minority government? They still stay there. It's just another vote, but you stay there. Yeah, it's kept to four years, so maybe it's not split along even lines eventually. But but just to begin, you know, you spend four years in each each city, and my my theory is that it's it's largely symbolic, but it rep- it, it acknowledges the importance of the West, which it is important. And it uh, it also brings the seat of government closer to the West by p- putting it in the West for four years um, at a time. And people can actually have more of a direct connection to it. So if they want to protest, they can go right to the parliament buildings. Whereas right now, uh, you know, the seat of government can seem so far away. Yeah. It sounds more expensive. How does it sound more expensive? Well, there's for sure got to be, you got to have the, you can't just board it up for four years. No, but you could you could open it up to big tours, and uh, you know when it's not being in use, like use it as a touristy, uh, you know, to gain some money or at least break try to break even. Yeah, maybe if you can if you make it like a museum for four years or something, and then a, then it's active yeah, for four years. Rent out the space. <laughs> Christmas party. Yeah, exactly. People that want to put um, their feet up on their prime minister's desk yeah there's some i mean i think there would be some expense initially because you'd, you'd have to build some sort of other parliament building essentially but i don't know to me it sounds worth it to ease the sort of feeling of western alienation and make confederation wholer yeah sure why not i don't care where the capital is so exactly and maybe um, that's because anyway. it's in ontario but I, I don't care where it is. <laughs> they can be idiots on either side of the country. Yeah, that's true. The president of Mexico, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, has COVID. He says he has mild symptoms. Now, his initials, AMLO, he's officially called AMLO. So AMLO, who's 67, has been criticized for not setting an example of prevention public. He's rarely been seen wearing a mask and continued to keep up a busy travel schedule taking commercial flights. He has resisted locking down the economy, noting the devastating effect it would have on so many Mexicans who live day to day. Early in the pandemic, he was asked how he was protecting Mexico, and he removed two religious amulets from his wallet, showed them off, and said, the protective shield is the get thee behind me, Satan, Lopez Abrador said, reading off an inscription on the amulet, stop enemy, for the heart of Jesus is with me not a prevention strategy recommended by the World Health Organization. No. Um, he has two, though. <laughs> and 
and Mexico right now is so desperate that they are negotiating with Russia for the Russian Sputnik V vaccine, which has not been approved for use in Mexico, but they desperately need to fill supply gaps for the Pfizer vaccine, which is, as you know, cutting back. Yeah, I I would not take the Sputnik vaccine, period. Yeah, Full stop. Uh, me neither. Uh, I don't think it's worth buying them. Maybe maybe people don't care down there, but certainly wouldn't like it. I'm glad Trudeau didn't take that approach. We'll just buy the yeah, Russian ones. Sorry? We'll just buy the Russian ones. Yeah, that's like bottom of the barrel stuff. Yeah. Those ones probably have microchips in them. Or worse. <laughs> yeah. But speaking of COVID, a 56-year-old woman who recently returned to New Zealand has tested positive for the UK variant of COVID-19 after completing a mandatory two-week quarantine where she twice tested negative. It is the first case in New Zealand since November. Uh, The woman's close contacts have been located and have since tested negative, and the woman is obviously being quarantined again. And people in New Zealand are investigating how she got it after quarantine for two weeks and testing negative. Yeah, and obviously these women's close contacts that have tested negative should probably still quarantine for maybe three weeks. Yeah, yeah, they don't want another I thought outbreak. New Zealand had a small outbreak last month, like early in January. No, the oh. article said it's their first since November. Okay, all right. Anyway, that's, so yeah, that'll be interesting to see how that turns out and uh, how, she, how she got it, and maybe let's see if her close contacts get it in a while. Now, this is one that kind of irked me, my last one. The European Union is imposing regulations that will force companies that produce vaccines within the EU to get authorization to ship vaccines out of the EU. Now, they're doing this to make sure that the companies are supplying EU countries first. And if the EU decides that they're not providing enough to the European Union, they won't let them ship to foreign countries. Now, call me an internationalist, but that doesn't sit right with me. Uh, it, if you've, that's where they're manufacturing, but it seems like if you have an order in for some and they've agreed to supply it, then they're kind of obligated. Yeah, and, and I understand that the first duty of any government is to its citizens, and I don't want to dispute that. I don't want to suggest that that's a bad thing. But we're in an increasingly globalized world. We're, in fe- we're facing increasingly globalized problems. COVID-19 is one of them. It's a global problem. And I think in that we are all global citizens. And if we want to deal with it, then we need to look after each other. And COVID-19 is not going to go away. If they completely eradicate it in the EU, they're going to get it again. Yeah. If countries outside of the EU aren't vaccinated as well. Yeah. Like everybody needs to be vaccinated. So to me, this is actually going to make it harder because it also, I, I think, is a disincentive for companies to uh, to try to make more vaccine faster. Well, I don't know about that. They still want to sell them all, but yeah, but it's more unnecessary red tape. It's, I mean, it's maybe maybe not maybe not, but it's still an unnecessary hurdle in vaccine distribution. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. Well, in in Britain. A 215-million-year-old dinosaur footprint was found on a beach by a four-year-old girl. That's, uh, I feel like maybe there are a few professors that are embarrassed to have missed that one. That's what I, exactly. How did you, 
It's not like it's 215 million years old. Is this the first time somebody's ever walked there? Yeah, exactly. I hate to be the paleontologist who was like, I was just there last week. Yeah, I put my blanket over top of that when I was lying on the beach. I didn't notice. <laughs> yeah. That's... Even, I mean, at some point in the last 215 million years, you got to think a paleontologist was there. Yeah, it's so bizarre. I, I can't believe it. It makes me think that it's a fake footprint, but it doesn't uh, doesn't seem to be, so... And in a slightly more serious note, people are fleeing Hong Kong for the United Kingdom with the Chinese crackdown that's happening now. So that's... Uh, Britain said, hey, why don't you come? And they seem to be taking them up on that in big numbers. Yeah, but I heard that the... Uh... In Hong Kong, you could have some sort of like special British document that wasn't quite a British passport, but it was close to it that previously would allow you to go visit Britain for six months. Like you wouldn't need a visa or anything mm. if you're coming from Hong Kong. But recently, in light of the crackdown in Hong Kong, the British government made that so you could come and work for five years and then have a pathway to citizenship just with that document. Yeah. The Chinese government now, in response, is refusing to recognize that document as a legitimate government uh, thing, uh, which might throw a wrench in that plan. Yeah, they just need to figure out a way to get out, and then once they're out, it doesn't matter what the Chinese government recognizes. Yeah, like, like exactly. don't don't try to use that document till you get to Britain. When you're leaving China, just use your passport and say, I'm going to visit my Aunt Betty. And then when yeah. you get to UK, say, I have this document, I want to stay here for five years. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. I, I feel like by the time the Chinese government's done this crackdown, they're going to be have full control over a deserted city. Yeah, yeah. Just be empty. Well, yeah. It, I mean, obviously, it'll be a lot less people, but and then the UK will be, uh, you know, busy. It's not exactly the best time in world history to have a mass <laughs> migration. <laughs> migration, but yeah, no. Honestly, though, I see that as a very good thing for the UK. I think my opinion is that the only downsides of immigration come from crappy people. Like, you can say that immigration fuels racial tension and, like, culture clash and stuff, mass immigration. But I would say that that only happens with crappy people. Oh, I mean, crappy people already living in the country. Yes, yes. <laughs> Dutch meant crappy immigrants. Okay, sure. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I guess so. Crappy people already living in the country. Like, yeah, it can be difficult if it's a massive, massive migration at once. That can be hard on an, on an economy, at least initially, uh, depending yeah, on everybody's health gains. and everything. But long, yeah, no, the long-term gains, I think overall it's probably better. You need populations to grow. And in general, the Western world, and Britain I'm including in there, is has seen declining population rates and, and immigration is the only way that it stays up. Yeah, and I mean, you get, you're right, it's it's a immediate strain on the economy and on the government, but then eventually you get more workers, you get more taxpayers, you get more business owners, entrepreneurs. Yeah. Um, like it's, it's and Hong Kong is a, you know, it's not a back, like it's a, it's a prosperous city. There's probably lots of people that are, that are coming in there that are, you know, highly educated, like probably well off if they can get their money out of China. You know what I mean? It's it's a yeah. different, it's a, it's not, it's a, just a different type of migration than most countries typically see that where you have a bit more of a lag between the, the, 
the impact and the positive uh, outcome, I think that'll be shorter because of the, the people that are coming in. Yeah, I agree. Shall I start again, or do you want to... No, no, you you go ahead, and then I'll, uh, if you miss whatever, if there's, depending on what time it is, I'll either go or I won't. All right, well, Mom, I hope you get a lot of red lights on your way home, and Grandma, grab a glass of wine, because this is a long one. To begin with, uh, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has called on the Biden administration to declare a national climate emergency, saying, quote, Trump used this emergency for his stupid wall, which wasn't an emergency, but if there ever was an emergency, climate is one. And I just have to say, I love hearing Chuck Schumer say uh, his stupid wall with his, you know, Brooklyn Jewish New York accent. It's a fantastic clip. He's also calls on the Biden administration to forgive student loan debt. And we've talked about Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi before, and I'm not a big fan of Nancy Pelosi, but I do like Chuck Schumer, and this is why. Because even though he is one of the longer people in the Senate, he's been there since 1999, so not the longest. Uh, you know, Patrick Leahy's been in there since the 70s, and uh, Chuck Grassley, I think, from the 70s, if not the 80s. But he is one of the ones who seems to be moving along with a progressive train. Like, he's not stuck in 1999, you know? Yeah. So I, I do like Chuck Schumer a bit better. Uh, he seems to be immediately more progressive than even Biden is, because Biden hasn't done either of these things. Yeah. And I like that he is willing to, you know, push the Biden administration. When did Mitch McConnell ever do that to Trump, you know? Oh, but I think I think Mitch McConnell didn't call out Trump because he just he, they just did stuff. They didn't ask Trump's permission. They didn't encourage Trump to do it. They just they Trump was a shield for them. Right. Yeah, that's true. Different relationship. Yeah. Um, but I like I like that Chuck Schumer's willing to do this. But it, it, it brought up. Another thing that happened in the U.S. Senate is President pro tempore uh, and Democrat from Vermont, Chuck, not sorry, not Chuck Grassley, Patrick Leahy, who I just mentioned, was hospitalized briefly after he felt, uh, he felt unwell. It wasn't serious, but, you know, abundance of caution. He's old. It's COVID. He, uh, he was in his offices and the attending physician in the Senate building came and was like, you know what, go to the hospital. He went to the hospital. He was released. He feel fine now. But it made me think, this is a fragile majority that the Democrats have. And they have quite a few senators, you know, and getting up there in age. If one of them dies, they could have a problem. Because take Patrick Leahy, he dies. Now, it varies from state to state how this works and what the rules are. But generally, the governor appoints a, a senator to replace the, a senator who's passed or a vacated seat. Vermont has a Republican governor, you know? Yeah. Massachusetts has a Republican governor. There are these blue states with two Democratic senators that have Republican governors that would probably appoint a Republican. Now, I did some research, and in Vermont, they actually have to have a special election not too long after the senator passes. So maybe the governor would appoint a a Republican, and then, you know, two months later, a special election would elect a Democrat. Sometimes it has been known, and in Vermont, where you have a a more 
moderate Republican governor, because the Vermont Republican Party is more moderate than most, it has been known to happen where they will appoint somebody of the same party on the recommendation of the leadership of that party. Like they'll say, like, you know, Chuck Schumer would say to the governor of Vermont, hey, appoint this guy. And then the governor of Vermont would be like, all right, cool. Which to me seems like the most fair. If you really want to respect the voters, the voters chose a Democrat to fill this term, appoint a Democrat, you know? That's the most fair, but that's not necessarily, I don't think that's what they, they would point. There'd be so much pressure to appoint a Republican, they would appoint a Republican. Now, also, different states have different laws. Some require you to appoint a member of the same party. It feels like that should be the law. It feels like that should be the law, but, or you just have an election, one or the other. Yeah, or you just go right into an election. I agree. But it just reminds me of how fragile this majority is. It's a bad... But then again, you know, Mitch McConnell could die and Kentucky has a Democratic governor or either senator from Louisiana. Louisiana has a Democratic governor. Like, it could go the other way, too. Yeah. Anyway, that wasn't even one of my points in political, and this is already long. I shouldn't I shouldn't add things. <laughs> <laughs> so, moving along, Pfizer has requested that Health Canada change vaccine vials from five to six doses. Now, what this means is, you know, it's not shipped, obviously. The vaccine is not shipped in needles. It's shipped in vials. And right now, it's labeled and considered that each vial has five doses. But there is a specific type of needle that wastes less, because apparently regular needles waste some, like there's a leftover. But there's a specific type of needle that wastes less where you can get a sixth dose out of a vial. And... um, I think that d- despite the fact that, you know, this is less of a common needle and, and uh, if you were to get to get six doses out of a vial, you would need widespread manufacturing of this type of needle. It seems worth it to me if they're not going to charge us more and we can get a whole other dose. We talk about another dose out of a vial, but in the, you know, a crate of 500 vials, that's another 500 doses, you know? Yeah, absolutely. It's good that we found out now and not... It's, it's good that we're vaccinating people so slow because we probably still have a lot of vials kicking around, so we haven't wasted yeah. all those yet. Yeah, exactly. So I, I think we should manufacture as many of these needles as we can and start making that the norm and get that other dose. And I, that could help offset the reduction from Pfizer and Moderna. It'll help. Yeah. not uh, Yeah, I won't do it fully, but it'll help. Yeah. Anyway... The man who wore the fur hat and horns at the Capitol Hill riot, who, who took the Nancy Pelosi's podium at one point, his name is Jacob Chansley. He's a longtime Trump supporter from Arizona, known as the, quote, QAnon shaman. And he's in jail because he broke into the Capitol in an attempted insurrection. But he wants to testify against Trump at Trump's impeachment trial. Oh, yeah. Uh, his Yeah, his lawyer says that Jacob was incited into action by the former president. He said this does not excuse his client's behavior, but, quote, does, however, mitigate the culpability. In successfully seeking Chansley uh, detention until trial, prosecutors said Chansley went into the Capitol carrying a U.S. flag attached to a wooden pole topped with a spear, ignored an officer's command to leave, went into the Senate chamber and wrote a threatening note to outgoing Vice President Mike Pence. When pressed about those charges, Chansley's lawyer insisted his client was peaceful throughout the riot and said the spear is not a functional spear. I think any lawyer, spear is functional. It's not a I, gun. Yeah, I, I was going to make the same point. Like, it might not be very sharp, but... It's functional. Yeah, anything you want to be a spear 
can be a spear yeah. if you really are, if you really believe in it, you know. Yeah. But the lawyer also claimed that Jacob is in the middle of a deprogramming process after being betrayed by QAnon and Trump, and claims that it's important that these that the Senate hear from these people. And I, you know, I tend to agree. I, I think uh, if he wants to testify, let him. If he wants to testify, let him. It doesn't negate his acts. He shouldn't get lesser jail time or anything because of it or whatever happens to him. It's it's one of these things where, you know, it's not my fault. Uh, something made me do it. It's, I, it, it. it's a big problem in our society, you know, where we hold other people responsible for our, our own actions. Like a bar can be held responsible if somebody is drunk... Dr- drinks over the limit there leaves and gets in an accident how that's i've never believed that's the bar's fault that is the person that made the decision at some point they were sober and they made a decision that i'm going to drive to this bar and then they made the decision to have the first drink and the second drink at some point yeah maybe they couldn't make that decision anymore but they made those initial decisions and that's what caused the that's what caused it it's their fault this guy did this based on information that Many, many people could see was false, but he made these decisions on his own. Nobody really forced him. He saw the, the information and he made a choice. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you and everything you said, although I will say that I think it, it's a common practice and I understand why it is, though, to you know, negotiate. The prosecution agrees to be slightly more lenient if you cooperate. And so I think if he does testify against Trump, maybe... 20 years instead of 25 or whatever like i don't think he should get away with it i don't think his punishment should then be insanely light but you know maybe shave a little bit off i don't know some, but i also don't know someone like this i mean it costs a lot of money to put somebody in jail i don't know if this person like i, I don't know that they need to be in jail they didn't, yeah, no, they I, didn't I, kill I, I anybody they didn't you know what i mean like it feels like uh, maybe a long probation and some some community service, something like that. I also, you know, I don't. I'm not sure these pe- people should go to jail. Yeah, no, and and you know, I agree. I just I just didn't know. That's just an easy example. Right. Okay. Anyway, well, so we'll see what that happens. If he does get to testify, I'd be interested in seeing that testify that uh, testimonial. Yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. Now there is there is a a, a caveat if he has some uh, mental illness that caused him to believe this and, and do this thing, then that's a caveat. But if he's determined to be sane, then what I say, I believe. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the South Carolina State Senate on Thursday passed a bill that would outlaw almost all abortions in the state, overcoming years of hurdles thanks to Republicans winning new seats in last year's election. The 30 to 13 vote is likely the final hurdle for the bill, it had passed the House easily in previous years, and Governor Henry McMaster has repeatedly said he will sign it as soon as he can. The Senate labeled the bill number one and made it the first major issue they took up in the 2021 session. And I had an immediate thought after reading that, and then the article said exactly what I was thinking. Democrats said that that was shameful because South Carolina has many more pressing problems, including more than 6,000 people dead from COVID-19. It has never expanded Medicaid or raised the minimum wage and perpetually has an education system that ranked towards the bottom of the nation. And that was exactly what I was thinking. I thought it was 
horrific that they labeled it bill number one listen you want to disagree about abortions we can have a passionate debate about that but you think that it is the most important issue right now amid the COVID-19 pandemic you think that's the first thing that should be tackled their base doesn't it's just it was ridiculous it I mean oh it's absurd maybe this is what the Polish people were uh, protesting yeah it was just horrific so yeah, that's a shame. I, I wonder if they could, like. Is there any way? Is there any way you can do something? Fe- like, isn't Roe 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 v. Wade is federal? Yes. Yes, and 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 states are caught, but these deep south states are constantly pushing. Like they're not outlawing abortion; they're just making so many harsh restrictions that it's almost impossible to get one. Yeah. Like some states have one abortion clinic in the entire state yeah so now this will be this will be taken to the supreme court and this is where it's things like this that where where you know those new justices um it will make a big difference yeah and that's that's i think what has emboldened these senates to do that or these states to do this because now it's like i dare you to take me to the court you know yeah get get roe v wade overturned i dare you yeah so yeah, you almost don't want to. Yeah, that's the thing. Like, I, I kind of think that Democrats won't. They won't take it to the court because they know that it could get worse. Yeah, and the, but the Democrats don't even need to, right? All you need is somebody to. So why wouldn't, like, if the, if the Republicans are smart, they would do it. Yeah, we'll see. Just so it gets, just so it gets heard now, will you have, you know, like a supermajority on the Supreme Court? Yeah. Didn't John Roberts say ages ago that he was going to retire? Uh, yeah, I don't know. Maybe. I swear he did. I hope he does it soon, and then we can get back to a 5-4 situation. He uh, won't. He won't. Republican. He won't. Why not? Well, because the because the Democrats are, are in power now. He'll definitely... Yeah, but he's... Yeah, but he's... Well, yeah, we'll see. He won't. He's under... He, he, too much pressure. There's no way he'll retire now. Anyway... I mentioned her last week, and last week I feel like she wasn't as big of a news item, but uh, she has had a busy week. Marjorie Taylor Greene is in the news for quite a few reasons. People are, well, people, Democrats, are up in arms because Republicans appointed her to the uh, House's Labor and Education Committee. And this is a woman who, you know, we talked about last week, called the uh, Parkland shooting a red flag operation, saying it was, you know, staged. Uh, and a video came out this week of her actually harassing one of the students who was at Parkland, who became one of the sort of like the chief spoke people for the Parkland gun control groups. And there's a video of Marjorie Taylor Greene harassing this high school aged student on the street one week after the Parkland shooting. Horrific. It's an unbelievable video. What kind of a heartless person, you know? Yeah. In other news, she has driven. Democratic Congresswoman Cori Bush, who is a uh, progressive House member, uh, a new member of the squad, which is the group with uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and a few and uh, others, drove this congresswoman to move offices because Cori Bush had an office near Marjorie Taylor Greene. And there was a confrontation, excuse me, in the hallway where Greene was uh, walking through the hallway. And Greene has a video of this because she was recording some sort of video on her phone. And she was walking through the hallways and she wasn't wearing a mask. And so Cori Bush yelled at her from across the hall, follow the rules and wear a mask. And and then Green starts to yell at Cori Bush and criticizes her on a bunch of unrelated issues, starting from that. 
And Bush said that Bush has also been targeted by Marjorie Taylor Greene on Twitter. And Bush has said that after several altercations, uh, she she doesn't feel comfortable near Marjorie Taylor Greene. And so she's moving offices, been approved by Nancy Pelosi. Marjorie Taylor Greene said that Bush incited the mask incident. And Bush said, yes, I did incite the mask incident because you should be wearing a mask. <laughs> I have to side with Corey Bush on this one. Like, I, like, yeah, you incited the mask incident, but I, I don't think there's anything morally wrong with telling somebody to follow the rules and wear a mask. Yeah, I mean, occasionally, uh, I know even here, sometimes I, I forget and I walk out of my room. One time I walked out of my room with no mask and, my, and no key. And I'm like, <laughs> ah, what do I do? There's a phone in the lobby, so I had someone come up and unlock my door so I could go back in, so I didn't have to go down to the lobby and and without a mask on. But it happens that you forget, but but it doesn't sound like she just forgot. You know, you I'm sorry, I forgot in my office. I'm on my way back. Sort of use your yeah. shirt or something. But yeah. uh, and knowing Marjorie Taylor Greene, but that's not what happened here. Yeah, it has also uh, come to light that in 2018. According to Marjorie Taylor Greene, in 2018, she suggested that the California wildfires had been started by a wealthy Jewish family using a supervillain laser satellite. Um, All I want is freaking sharks with lasers. (laughs) Um, That's two things. It is both... Insane? Insane. Yeah. And (laughs) anti-Semitic. With, with like, a light sprinkling of anti-Semitism. To be fair... uh, it could be coincidence that it was a Jewish family. We don't know. <laughs> yeah, it could, yeah, you're right. You know what? That's true. And then the mask she always wears is this black mask that says in big white letters across it, censored. And I have to say, she's not censored. She's a representative. She has a platform that she's constantly yelling from. But can we censor her? <laughs> I, would, I wouldn't mind if we made that accurate, you know? Make the mask like, some duct tape or something. Yeah, generally not for censorship, but in this case, like, just her. It doesn't have to be the whole Republican Party, but just her. That would be nice. It's embarrassing that she got elected. Yeah, The people uh, of uh, whatever state she's from, the people from Georgia should be embarrassed. You think so? She she ran in, that's the thing, though, she ran in one of Georgia's most conservative districts, and... (laughs) That's one of the biggest problems in the U.S. And even to an extent in Canadian politics, it doesn't matter who you run in those really safe districts. No, you're right. It's a it's a big problem, and it's it's a big problem in in well, it's a big problem, I guess, in in first past the post, right? I mean, it's but people will vote for conservatives because they are conservative or liberal because they're liberals and it's it is a huge issue and i have it's also become you know in in the united states you're either like you have most people you have to register right like you're either republican democrat or independent right yeah so so and most people register republican or democrat and then typically you just vote for them all the time and that doesn't make sense I've never done that. Depends on where I live. It depends on who's running. I've voted for every single party, well, every single major party in Canada at one point or another based on yeah. where I lived, who was running, and what they said at the time. Yeah. I've only voted in three elections, and I voted NDP in all of them, but I, I would say that the candidate where I'm running, the national figure, that would all 
that have every time that has come into account for me, um, and every time I've just ended up coming to NDP. But I would vote green, um, and in certain situations, I would even vote liberal. In situations I can't really imagine realistically, I'd vote conservative. But uh, you know, if if I hated all three other, if all three other candidates were Marjorie Taylor Green esque, I wouldn't care what party they're running for. I'd vote I'd vote conservative if the other four major. I don't know. I might vote communist before I vote conservative. But maybe we'll see. But yeah, it's it, it's an issue where it doesn't matter that who's running that they just get voted for. But but you saw we saw it in Alabama. In uh, 2017, when they had their special Senate election, uh, and it was a Democrat versus a child molester, and it was close. And and the Democrat, bar- the Democrat won barely. Yeah, it was so close. So many Republicans will vote for a child molester over a Democrat. Yeah, it's no better in uh, in in safe Democratic states either. It's not like it's any different. No, you're absolutely right. It's not a great system, but no. what's it? It's better than everything else. But yeah, so anyway, Marjorie Taylor Greene, busy week. Andrew Yang, do you remember Andrew Yang? Yeah. This is actually old news, but I haven't mentioned it yet. He didn't he, win president? Uh, sorry? He lost the Republic, uh, Democratic nominee? Yes, he did, but now he's uh, oh. running for mayor of New York. Okay, so it's not older than... I thought we were going way back. No, 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 no. He's close. out of the running <laughs> for the... No, he's he's running for mayor of New York, and he's considered the front runner. He polls as the front runner. Yeah, you know, he was interesting in the uh, in the Democratic debates. He was he was all right. I didn't hate him. Yeah, no, me neither. And his big thing was universal basic income. And if he successfully uh, puts that in in New York, the biggest city in the U.S., it could be the staging for potentially doing it on a statewide. Maybe even eventually national level. Yeah, difficult for a mayor to get that across the the goal line. Well, I think in the U.S. It, it's possible. I think there are cities with a, a sort of a UBI type of thing. Oh yeah, going on. Yeah, I think maybe San Francisco has something like it. Yeah, maybe. Or maybe it's a minimum wage. I mean, those are two I, very different things. Yes, it is. You're right. It is. It is. But but cities can do more than you might think. Okay. Moving on. U.S. President Joe Biden, eventually I'll just say Joe Biden, but right now I just like saying President Joe Biden because it's not President Trump. Um, President Joe Biden signed a raft of executive actions on Wednesday to combat climate change, including pausing new oil and gas leases on federal land and cutting fossil fuel subsidies. Uh, Biden also set a goal to conserve 30 percent of federal land and waters to protect wildlife by 2030 and uh, seek to double renewable energy production from offshore wind also by 2030. I have to say, a week in, he's already seeming more environmentally friendly than Trudeau. Yeah, I don't know how much of the U.S. economy is dependent on natural resources versus the Canadian economy. I would argue the Canadian economy is probably a higher percentage based on... Yes, no, I think you're 100% right, but uh, I would... My argument has always been... You know, I was listening to a podcast the other day where they were talking about how, uh, you know, Aaron O'Toole and Jason Kenney want to make people feel that there is a future for oil in Canada, you know, and that kind of thing. And I have to say there isn't. There isn't because there isn't a future for oil or any natural resource unless we shift away from them because they are not infinite and the planet is dying and we will all die 
if we don't shift away from these things. In, so an, ironic, is, in an ironic twist, that would make a lot more oil. Yes, it would. You're right. <laughs> For um, the next level of but, people that come back. <laughs> but necessarily, there cannot and will not be a future for oil in this country. And there won't be, there can be for other natural resources if we're smart, but there can't be for oil, there can't be for pollutants. And the smart thing to do is to move away from, you know, not just abandon these these uh, industries and not replace them with anything, replace them with green jobs, green energy, get that going. It's something that takes a few years to set up, takes a few years to become effective. So start now. And you could make Canada the center of green energy and green technology on North America. That's good business because that is – anybody with foresight can see that that is the necessary future if we want to survive on this planet. Anyway, uh, so we'll move on. You were mentioning Rand Paul last week and how he sucks. Well, Rand Paul's objection to Donald Trump's impeachment trial – he calls it unconstitutional – forced a vote in the Senate. And uh, senators voted 55 to 45 that it was constitutional – with Republicans Susan Collin, Lisa Murkowski, Mitt Romney, Ben Sace, and Pat Toomey siding with Democrats. But it was a victory for Republicans, even though they lost the vote. And even Rand Paul said so, because it shows that the Democrats don't have the votes to convict Trump. Probably true. I mean, yeah. I mean, obviously, if you voted, if you think, if, you, if 45 people voted that it's unconstitutional, they aren't going to vote to convict yeah, unless something huge comes out, which it likely won't. Well, how can it? Everything that happened was on video. So what What can come out yeah. that people don't know? And I mean, it's even possible these people who voted that it is constitutional, they could say it's constitutional and I think he's innocent. Yeah. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Like, that, that doesn't even guarantee them 55 votes. So the Democrats are in a bad position. Well, bad, bad for one way, good if he starts the Patriot Party and takes half the Republican votes. Yeah, yeah. although, you know, I've heard, my recent update that I heard on that is that uh, he's dismissed the idea of starting a new party, but he still, and there's lots of time for this to change, don't get me wrong, but he still pulls as the front runner right now in the 2024 Republican primary if he wins, if he decides to run. Yeah. Uh, I, 2023, sorry, 2023. Democrats are probably, uh, uh, would love it if he ran again, I think. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Or Trump, or even somebody Trump-esque, you know? That's what they want. No, it needs to be Trump. If it's a younger Trump-esque, they could win. But Trump, at the next election, is going to be like 85 or something. If you have a decent person running against him, if it's not Joe Biden... Yeah. You'll crush him. Uh, but I, I would say even if it's because other names floated are like Ivanka Trump or Donald Trump Jr. And if it's either of them, I would say that's that's no better than Donald Trump. Yeah, probably not. The, the thing is, the difference is they're I think they both. Well, not Donald Trump Jr., but I think Ivanka has has at least a shot of of, of winning. Yeah. So we'll uh, we'll see. We got we got uh Two, two, probably two years before people start announcing they're running for the Republican primary. So we'll see. I wouldn't put it past him. Yeah, I I would be surprised, but I would. You never know. He surprised me in the yeah. past, so you never know. But I, I just don't. I'm not sure that really. Did he? Did he really enjoy it? Like, did he like it? Or 
is he just going to take this and spin it off to make make his brand bigger and not not run again? Yeah. Well, like I said, we'll see. Maybe um, he liked it, it because he didn't do much bad. work. So. Yeah, exactly. Biden talked to Vladimir Putin for the first time since being elected president and uh, criticized him on all the you know cybersecurity and interfering in elections and human rights abuses and putting bounties on U.S. troops and all that, uh, which is a nice change of pace to hear the U.S. president criticize a dictator while getting him to hey, agree. Hey, Putin to was elected. <laughs> yeah, okay. While getting Putin to agree to continue the last remaining arms control agreement between Russia and the USA. I don't remember exactly what it's called, but uh, it's good that they're continuing that, so good for Biden. Yeah. See, some people out there might remember Sarah Sanders, who was one of Trump's press secretaries. Is it, and the is it Huckabee? Serving. Is it Sarah Huckabee Sanders? Yes. Yeah. She was longer she was, uh, than Spicer? She, yeah, she was longest serving. Spicer okay. was less than a year. Okay. Sarah Sanders was a little over two years. Anyway, she is going to run for governor of Arkansas. And I know it's... Arkansas? I know, like, I know people like to say Arkansas, but if they would like to be called Arkansas, then they can replace that last S with a W. It spells Arkansas. I'm pronouncing it Arkansas. If that's if they want their state name to be something else, they can spell it right. <laughs> but yeah, uh, um, her father, Mike Huckabee, was, was the governor of the state uh, previously. And she is a big, big Trumpy. So, but Arkan- Arkansas is a deep red state. They sometimes elect Democratic governors, but I think it'll be, I think she'll win. Probably. As long as she wins the Republican primary, which I think she will. It's funny, though, um, the current governor is Asa Hutchinson. Before him was Democrat Mike Beebe, and before Mike Beebe was Mike Huckabee, hmm. which is amusing. Moving on. Moving away from the United States and into Canada, a new Angus Reid poll shows that over 50% of respondents in every province except Alberta and Saskatchewan, want the Canadian government to accept the Keystone decision and focus on other issues with the U.S. The exact numbers are 60% in B.C., 51 in Manitoba, 62 in Ontario, 74 in Quebec, and 57 in the Atlantic provinces, which are pulled together because they don't make up enough of a population to bother with separate. Meanwhile, only 28% in Alberta and 33% in Saskatchewan. I I believe overall... Um, it is. Go, sorry, ahead. go ahead. No, go ahead. I was going to say overall, it's fifty nine percent Canada total that want uh, the Trudeau government to move on. Listen, if it's breaking rules that we negotiated in NAFTA, then we should not move on. We should take them to the to the the courts that are available. Otherwise, yeah, it's done. Move on. One or the other. But but honestly, yeah. people people don't get to we elect people to to sort of decide this. It doesn't matter what people think. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, but it, it's funny that much. Quebec. It's funny that Quebec's the highest because anything that that goes their way, you know, like if it's if it's a specific Quebec thing, then they're you know they would be all over it. But, but yeah. because it's Alberta, you know, one in four, <laughs> nobody cares. Yeah, I was reading an article the other day that said you know Kenny is obviously right now the biggest brouhaha over the pipeline but uh, people are saying that he's gonna have to let it go eventually and same with Aaron O'Toole because it's not anything that they or even the Canadian government really has control over like they can't bring the pipeline back and while going after Ottawa as an effective strategy in Alberta and as the official opposition going after the government which was to do 
when it's a battle that you literally cannot win, there's no way for you to win, you know, people are only going to look at losses as victories for so long, you know? Again, they only can't win if you, if they aren't, if you can't take it to the, to the NAFTA thing. Yeah. And I don't know that. Um, Yeah. Speaking of Jason Kenney, he is starting to ease restrictions in Alberta beginning on February 8th. He has decided to use hospitalizations as the metric amid falling case numbers and said that if hospitalizations go back up, restrictions will be reimposed because he's like, they, they just, their biggest goal is to make sure they don't exceed their healthcare capacity. I think it's a bad metric personally because you don't have to go to the hospital to die, you know? Yeah, although most people do go to the hospital before they die. <laughs> But yeah. yeah, but it's still it's still not necessarily... Some people aren't that smart. Maybe. They don't get tested to die either. So what is a good That's metric? True. That's fair. That's a good point. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it's an all right metric. And, and case numbers are going down. Sorry, not case numbers, but, you know, like uh, cases per day are going down in Alberta. So... Yeah. I think I it's an okay metric. Yeah, I, I mean, it's better than nothing. So that's good. <laughs> We're not using um, a metric. I'm going on whims. <laughs> Gut feel. <laughs> Wouldn't surprise me with Kenny. <laughs> so this was interesting. Two Canada Post workers were suspended for three days without pay after refusing to deliver the Epic Times, a right-wing publication that has praised Trump and mainly targets the government of China. Their issue with it were that it referred to was that it referred to COVID nineteen as the CCP virus, and CCP stands for Chinese Communist Party, without a disclaimer that this was only a theory and that the claim would fuel the already aggravated anti-Asian racism in Canada that COVID has created. Yeah, I mean, I think your job is to deliver the news, deliver the deliver the mail. I'm not sure their job is to censor what the Epoch Times writes. Yeah, I've read the Epoch Times. It's, it's pretty right-wing. I do agree, though, that it is their job to, like, I, I think suspended without pay for three days is justified. And 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 fair enough, if that's, a, if that's a penalty they're willing to take to do this, good on them. Yeah, that's what I was about to say, is uh, I, I do agree with their morality, and I understand their complaints. In fact, I share them. I, I think it should have some sort of disclaimer. Yeah, so I, I, I won't criticize Canada Post for, you know, putting them on suspension, but I also won't criticize the postal workers. I, I think that's a valid moral stand. Yeah, it's a, it's a union job. It'll probably be grieved. I'm sure they'll get their payback anyway. Maybe. If they, yeah, I know. We'll see. Annemi Paul, leader of the Green Party of Canada, has announced, well, she hasn't announced, the Green Party announced that she's going to run in Ontario in the next federal election. And uh, 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 a Green Party, somebody within the Green Party who wasn't authorized to speak, but, you know, spoke, has said that they're either going to run enemy poll in Guelph, where uh, current polling suggests the Liberals lead with 42%, and the Greens are in second with 24 Spadina, Fort York, where the Libs lead with 56 and the Greens are in fourth with 5%. Parkdale High Park, where the Libs lead with 46%, and the Greens are in fourth with 6%. Davenport where the Liberals lead with 44 and the Greens are in fourth with four. Toronto Danforth, where the Libs lead with 46 and the Greens are in fourth with six. Or Toronto Centre, where the Libs lead with 40% and the Greens are in second with 28%. What I find interesting is that Kitchener Centre is not on that list because uh, within Ontario, that is the riding where the Greens did best in 2019. 
They came in second in Kitchener Center, closely followed by Guelph. But uh, and, and I question why um, why they were considering so many ridings where the Greens were in fourth place with single-digit support. But Green internal polls have suggested that the Greens have roughly quadrupled their support in Toronto, Danforth, and Spadina, Fort York, which still puts them well behind the Liberals or NDP. And the Greens ceiling, which is about a third of the voters, is probably too low to give the party a decent shot. But, you know, until Enemy Paul ran in Toronto Centre in that by-election, the Greens pulled in fourth place, a distant fourth, and now they pull in second. So, you know... She can clearly bring people out and maybe change a low polling. They need to discuss with the... They need the... Whatever riding she picks, they need the NDP to drop out of. Well, that's the thing is... um, One thing that Toronto Danforth, Spadina Fort York, and Parkdale High Park and uh, Davenport have in common is that they were seats all formally held by the New Democrats. And the Greens are hoping that Amy Paul's Toronto appeal will be enough to pull voters away from the NDP and put the Greens in contention. But I think that you're not going to get the NDP to drop out of seats that they have won in the past and think they can win again. Yeah, no, it needs to be... I think, I think you know, I think Guelph is probably a good one, and you can say, listen, you've never run this. Why don't you pull your candidate? And they can... Yeah. And the other thing is they can threaten. They can say, listen, this is our... This could be almost like that. Like, we're going to run in these, these all these seats... These are the ones we're looking at. Now they can go to the NDP and say, you know, we're going to run in one of these. Uh, which one do you not want to run a candidate in? Because if you do, we're going to run in whatever one you think you're going to win, right? Like, they, 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 like if it's if it's Toronto Danforth that they that the NDP thinks that they have a good grasp on, that's where we'll run because that hurts the NDP too. Yeah. Toronto Danforth is actually the most likely NDP one from all that. Exactly. That's um, what I, that's what I figured. So the so they can go to the NDP and say you you don't run in Guelph, we'll run there. If you run somebody in Guelph, we're going to run in Toronto Danforth. Yeah, and uh, I mean I think that's a good strategy. I think Guelph is probably the best riding for her to run in because even though Kitchener Centre is where the Greens did best in Ontario in 2019, I think they have more room for gains in Guelph because Guelph is where the Ontario Green Party currently has their only seat. Yeah. I think that makes the most sense, personally, for yeah. running well. Yeah. No, exactly. But um, you still need to get the NDP candidate out of there, or she's not going to Yeah, I, I agree. And you know what? Throw it out there that you're even willing to not run a Green candidate in Burnaby South, where Jagmeet Singh runs, which he'll probably win even with a Green candidate, but right like that... But it's not guaranteed throughout. Or or Toronto election. or Toronto Danforth do a trade off for yeah. one riding. Yeah, I've, I've long believed that the NDP and the Greens could negotiate. There's probably at least twelve ridings where you know they could do like, okay, you don't run one in here, and I won't run one here. Sorry to interrupt you there. I had a phone call I had to take. Go ahead. No worries. I think I was done. I, I think that the Greens and NDP could both pick up a bunch of seats if they negotiated a deal where they, you know, maybe did 12 ridings where you don't run one here, I won't run one there, you know? Yeah, or just join, merge. Yeah. Well, there is a movement for that, too. We'll we'll see if it happens. Anyway, well, that'll be interesting. We'll see which one she decides to run in. Yeah. In Ontario, Dr. Brooks Fallis says he was removed from his position... Because of his name? (laughs) Uh, Not that kind of Fallis. Um... 
says he was removed from his position as interim medical director of critical care at a hospital network because he has spoken out about the province's pandemic response. He said, when I met with some of the members of the senior leadership team about this, I was told I was being let go as interim medical director, not because of my performance as a physician or as a hospital leader, but because of my outspoken public statements regarding Ontario's pandemic response. Fallis said the state... Uh, he, he was told that? He was told that? That's what he says. As a result of my actions, the hospital was under pressure from the provincial government, leading to concerns about the possible loss of funding for the hospital. His employer, the William Osler Health Systems, denies the province played a role, as did a spokesperson for Ontario Premier Doug Ford. But when I think back to pre-pandemic Doug Ford, not this dad, premier dad thing he's got going on where he's soft and everybody's best friend and he's looking after us. But, you know, remember back 2019, 2018 Doug Ford when he was more of a mobster kind of look going on and we all recognized that he was horrible? That seems likely to me. It could be. I I think he should uh, put some sort of accent there on his name so it's pronounced differently. Maybe that would help his, his job... Uh, or, or work in pornography, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> but, but what do you think? Like, I think it's very possible that the provincial government pressured. It's possible. I, I don't know. I, I mean, I, without being in the room, it's <laughs> like, yeah, well, you, it, yeah. No, well, nobody will ever know unless, it, unless there's some sort of whistleblower or something. It could also be someone who wasn't doing a good job that is just, again, not my fault. I, they were pressured by the by the government. Now, it's a weird thing to, maybe just that's what he believes. Although he, you said he stated that they told him that. Yes. So if they come out and said, we did not say that. Yes. That's weird to me. Like somebody is obviously just a bold face lying there. That's, that's bizarre. Yeah. It could be either of them. I don't, I don't know, uh, Brooks. Yeah, me neither, clearly. So, I mean, I imagine we'll never know. But even the fact that I wouldn't put it past the government is unfortunate. Yeah. Going back to Quebec, homeless people are no longer subject to Quebec's curfew. A superior court judge ruled on Tuesday. It feels like that's obvious. If you don't have a home, you can't go back to it. Yeah, right? But apparently not. Judge Chantal Mass, or Massey, I'm not sure said the plaintiff, a group of legal aid lawyers who were working on behalf of homeless clients, demonstrated that the lives, safety, and health of homeless people were put at risk by the curfew. Because homeless people have no place to go at night, she ruled the measure as worded would not apply to people experiencing homelessness. The curfew has a discriminatory and disproportionate effect on people experiencing homelessness, contrary to the right of equality of persons, she said. The measure infringes the right to life, liberty, and security of the person protected by the Canadian and Quebec Charter for people experiencing homelessness. But Premier Francois Legault, with his huge heart, has argued that there are plenty of places for homeless people to stay in Montreal, with the addition of new makeshift shelters throughout the city. There are places set up for them, Legault said when he announced the curfew earlier this month, especially with the cold. We would like them to be indoors, and there is enough room available. After Massey's ruling on Tuesday, Lionel Carment, Quebec's junior health minister, said the government will review the ruling before commenting. Yeah, I mean, a couple things. It's good that they're setting up shelters that, you know, because it has been cold. So 
it's great if they can have somewhere to go at night, but is it set up properly with, are they, are they isolated or is it just a big COVID transmission fest? Yeah. And also there are other cities than Montreal. Yeah. No, I know. I'm just taught, you know, with, I'm sure, I mean, I'm sure Quebec has set it up. I'm, I'm sure there are homeless places, but, but I'm not saying they, obviously, if the curfew says you need to go home and you don't have a home, then there's nowhere for you to go. But they should have places for these people to go if they want to go. That's, that's you know, that's great. It's good for them for setting them up. Yeah, I, I agree. But I just question if, you know, outside of the big cities, are is there proper infrastructure? Because all Francois Legault commented on was Montreal. Yeah. Like, is there proper infrastructure in some of the maybe more northern communities in Quebec? Yeah. Is this province-wide curfew? Yeah. It also is how big's the homeless prob- problem when there's only, you know, in towns of five and six hundred. Yeah, but but even, you know, are you going to send the maybe your town's one homeless person to jail for not obeying the curfew when he has nowhere to go. Oh, I, I, I'm sure he'd appreciate the night in a warm place as long as you let him out in the morning. Maybe. Not I sent to jail, or but allowed to stay in there the for the place. night. Sorry? Not sent to jail like charged, but allowed to sleep in there for the night would be nice. Yeah, well, honestly, I think if it's empty, then they should be allowed to sleep there anyway, if they want. Moving out of Quebec... And Actually, the, uh, there was one other uh, curfew story this week where, um, I don't know if you saw, but there was a, a teenager who was in Quebec. I guess his parents are separated. He was in Quebec visiting his dad. His mom lives in Ontario. And uh, he left his dad's place a little bit late. And he was sort of a few hundred meters from the Ontario border at 8.12 and got pulled over by the police and explained his situation and said, you know, I'm, I was visiting my dad, time got away from me a bit, I'm going back to Ontario to my mom's, and I, you know, I lost track of time a little bit, and, uh, you know, I, I just I just need to get across the border. And they gave him a $517 fine. Despite having the authority to give him a warning and let him go. Yeah, I think he could go contest that and he'd be fine. Probably. Well, that is unreasonable. It just seems crazy. Uh, come on. What is this for? Yeah. What is this really for? It's to keep people in their houses at night. This kid wasn't out partying or anything. He's just trying to get back to his to his house. And he was 12 minutes late. It wasn't midnight. It was 8:12. Yeah, it's it's just it's just cruel. Anyway, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, moving over to Alberta. Um, So United Conservative MLAs in the Alberta legislature defeated a motion proposed by the NDP on Tuesday that would have asked Cabinet to release confidential information it considered before investing up to $7.5 billion in the Keystone XL pipeline. The motion was proposed by Kathleen Ganley, who is an NDP, or rather is an NDP MLA for Calgary Mountain View, at a meeting of the Public Accounts Committee and called on Cabinet to waive confidentially, uh, confidentiality and release information, included, including any legal opinions and analysis of risk. Uh, the UCP used its majority in, on the committee to kill the motion, and Ganley said it is clear this is an attempt to cover up plain and simple. Kenny is now facing questions for investing taxpayer money in Keystone XL when Biden made his intentions about the project clear during the U.S. election campaign. The Alberta government agreed to invest $1.5 billion and provide TC Energy with up to $6 billion in loan guarantees. And listen, if you had the information and you looked at it and, to your best judgment, decided that it was safe and smart 
to put the six, seven and a half billion dollars investment into this, then there's no reason to hide that information. Well, the I don't know. I don't know what the information says, but the whole thing seems like a, obviously that's what was going to happen. Uh, I think she knew it when she put the motion forward, and the whole thing is just a political ploy. The whole thing, both sides. Yeah, but if 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 the UCP made the best decision based on that information, and the NDP in Alberta is not anti-pipeline, so if they looked at the information, they would probably, if any reasonable person would look at it and say it's the safest bet to put in the money, then why not release it? Say, yeah, release it, sure. You know what, you want it? Go, look at it. Look, well, we don't, there's I don't, every reason to invest the money. Well, we don't know what's in it, obviously, because it's confidential, but there might be reasons that it's confidential, so... Well, then let us know. Yeah, they should They should somehow. It would be good to say, listen, this is confidential information because you know, whatever. There's this, yeah. this, this, and this, so we can't do it. What's your reasoning yeah. behind voting it down? Sure. But she I had to know when she put it forward that it was also going to be put down. Well, I mean, that's uh, always the opposition, but it's always politics. And, uh, and yeah, it is maybe just exposing and showing that they're hiding something. And maybe. I don't think that's bad. Anyway... I don't like Jason Kenny. <laughs> Moving on. So, you remember uh, Lynn Biak? No, did she play on uh, Big Bang Theory, the the Sheldon's girlfriend, Amy? No, that's that's Miriam uh, Balick or Bailick or something like that. No, Lynn Biak is the senator who defended residential schools. So close. A while back, she got in a, um, big trouble because she praised residential schools and then said some racist things and posted some racist letters on her senator website. And then she went, uh, you know, she was suspended and made to go to racism training. And then she failed racism training, so she had to go back to racism training. And then she finally passed. <laughs> How do you racism fail training? racism training? <laughs> That's probably not a hard test. The 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 trainer said she wasn't taking it seriously and wasn't learning, <laughs> so. She went back and had to do it again, and then finally passed, and the person said, okay, she's ready to go, and then she said something racist again. So the racist, was the the racist training instructor fired? (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. But uh, she's resigning. Yeah. Um, And this just, she's leaving three years before her mandatory retirement date, and just coincidentally... She's resigning just as other members of the Senate were preparing to consider a motion from Senator Mary Jane McCollum to permanently remove her from the upper house. She has been suspended from the Senate twice for questionable comments about the indigenous residential school system and for posting racist letters on her taxpayer-funded website. Now, if she had been expelled, there would have been financial consequences for her since it would have allowed Parliament to curtail her lifetime pension. Having resigned, she is entitled to her pension. But it's just a coincidence that she's resigning before this happened. Now, in her retirement announcement, she retreated from the apology that she made, saying she stood by the initial remarks that prompted so much backlash, saying some have criticized me for stating that the good, as well as the bad, of residential schools should be recognized. I stand by that statement. Others have criticized me for stating that the Truth and Reconciliation report was not as balanced as it should be. I stand by that statement as well. And finally, 
I have been criticized for offering concerned Canadians a space to comment critically about the Indian Act. My statements in the resulting posts were never meant to offend anybody, and I continue to believe that Indigenous issues are so important to all of us that a frank and honest conversation about them is vital. Her last statement is right. Sorry? Her last sentence is correct. Yes, it is. But, you know, she never meant to offend anybody by posting racist letters on her taxpayer-funded website. Uh, the one thing I don't understand, I mean, she says the good and the bad of residential schools. What does she, what What is the good? That's the big question, isn't it? I don't... Maybe the teachers? Like, what can she possibly mean? What was good about them? And I guess for the for the indigenous people that lived in the communities that the schools were set up in so they didn't get taken from their homes, maybe it was okay? Maybe? Well... But it's still like you're Maybe, you're teaching. Your teachers weren't beating you and sexually assaulting you. And yeah, and also is that is that it wasn't necessarily that the the teachings that that they wanted to have for their children at that particular time. Yeah. So I, I just don't understand what she means by the good and the bad. I do agree you need to have a frank conversation, and maybe she needs to have a frank conversation about this, so she can so she can say to somebody because because. Canadians do need to be educated in this, and they need to say, if people think it was good, then, you know, let's have a conversation. What do you think was good about it? Let's let's talk about this, because it wasn't. It wasn't good yeah. at all. No, you're right. It wasn't. And uh, and I, I think she shows her own ignorance just by saying that and not being able to really point to anything. And God, I hope they can take her pension away from her somehow. They won't. They probably can't, but it would be nice. I hate that she's running away with the money. Yeah, well, I mean, just get rid of the Senate, then this problem goes away. Yeah. Senate in Canada is pretty useless, in my opinion. Yeah. Anyway, forward on, as we truck through my many points, we're almost... Holy crap, it just keeps going. Yeah, it does. I told you. Um, Anyway, former Finance Minister Bill Morneau says he's withdrawing from the race to lead the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, which is this big multinational organization that I know nothing about, after he failed to receive enough support to advance to the third round. And this is what he left politics for, so... Oops, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Sucks to be Bill Morneau. (laughs) Uh, Can I come back? Yeah, exactly. I'm free Um, again. Anyway, so he'll just completely fade into irrelevance now. Uh, his legacy will be the We Charity scandal. Deputy Prime Minister Christia Freeland was asked by CBC News if she or the Canadian government had been promised a policy exemption by Biden when it comes to Biden's uh, Buy American policy, uh, one that would allow Canadian companies to retain access to the $600 billion that the U.S. government spends on contract each year. And she said, the Prime Minister raised it with President Biden They committed to talking about it, working closely on the issue. Uh, When it comes to Buy America and protectionism from the U.S. overall, this is not a new thing for any Canadian government. And I can tell you, it is not a new thing for our government. It is something we know how to deal with, we know how to push back on. Of all the government contracts that the U.S. gave out uh, last year, the Canadian firms got $674 million. So it's not nothing. I just think it's... (laughs) kind of amused me that she was like listen we dealt with trump for four years i think we can handle biden yeah um, so you know we'll see i mean obviously 674 million dollars isn't nothing there's a lot at stake and uh hopefully we're able to secure something with the u.s but yeah 
But speaking of the Deputy Prime Minister, according to an economist that was frequently cited by her before her political career, the government is barely scratching the surface when it comes to using its taxation tools to fight against wealth inequality. Freeland's updated mandate letter, published earlier this month, directs her to, quote, identify additional ways to tax extreme wealth inequality. But so far, that seems limited to, quote, very gingerly closing some stock option loopholes, Miles Corrick said in an interview, who is the economist that CBC, or that, not CBC, that Christia Freeland uh, quoted a lot before her political career. If the government wants to make substantial efforts to reduce wealth inequality and its corrosive effects on social mobility, the first place to start is to stick with the taxation principle of a dollar is a dollar and treat income and capital gains the same way according to this economist. Currently, only half of capital gains, the increase in value of investments such as stocks, qualify as taxable income. That's a huge benefit to the well-to-do, Corrick said. That is the elephant in the room. Uh, Corrick is a professor at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York and is best known for his work contributing to the Great Gatsby Curve, a chart showing the relationship between inequality and the lack of social mobility. That research was frequently referred to by Freeland in her former career as a journalist and author. And what I find interesting is Freeland, uh, I, I've watched TED Talks of her before she was in Parliament, and before she was Deputy Prime Minister, and she talked a lot about this kind of thing. And she is now, outside of Deputy Prime Minister, she's also the Finance Minister, so she has perhaps the room to do some of this, and I'll be interested to see if she does. Yeah, it, it, it will be interesting to see if she does. I don't know if the capital gains is the spot to hit necessarily, you know, every, again, it's not just the well-to-do. A lot of people have their savings in, in this sort, that sort of, you know, some sort of stock investments where they hope that over their retirement that, uh, that, that they've made some money. And, uh, why, you know, it's nice if you can get a portion of that. But, but obviously, obviously the richer you are, probably the more stocks you have, I, I would say. But again, do you need to hit capital gains specifically or can you just make it if you're, you know, I mean, over over $500 million gets taxed at 60% or something? It seems pretty obvious to me how you can get a pretty big hunk of money in. Yeah, I, I was thinking the same thing. Like if you did it an over whatever. And you can do the same things on capital gains. It's 50% of your first million. Yeah. And then... You know, 60% of your next million and 70% of your next million. and Maybe not quite that dramatic, but you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So so we'll see if she uh, holds back or uh, if she implements. You know, it's it It's different when you're the Minister of Finance than when you're an author. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there's more political consequences. And obviously she's not – she has more power over it, but she's not the one in charge, really. I mean, if Trudeau doesn't want something – it's not going to happen, you know? Which which is funny because I'm not sure a drama teacher should get the final say in the economic policy for the country. Yeah, I, I, I think Christy Freeland is far then, more confident. Than like, why, not, why not ask Mr. Peters what he thinks? Yeah, but we'll see. Anyway, that was long. I'm done. Um, but I think there were a few important stories that you mentioned that I didn't get to. So take it away. Aaron O'Toole doesn't think... Uh, JT should be picking the next governor general because he has a minority government. 
O'Toole said he must consult the other parties to show Canadians that there's an assurance that there's no politicalization of this important role. First of all, important role is probably a stretch. Uh, yeah. That's that sort of lip service to the Queen. I don't think it's an important role. And it's always been a political position. Uh, it's, it's, I don't, it makes no sense. It makes no sense. Yeah, no, not at all. And uh, I'm just trying to find out when Stephen Harper, because Stephen Harper had two minority governments before he had a majority government. And I know he appointed at least one governor general. And I wonder if that was ever during his minority. Uh, I'm sure my, minority governments must have appointed attorney gen- or governor generals before it. It must have happened, uh, and it just, I don't see it as being an issue. Yeah, he he appointed David Johnson in 2010. He didn't have his first majority till 2011. So they're just politicizing something for no good reason. Yeah, which is not surprising, but. Yeah, no, not at all. And Putin talked about the potential issues with the big social media companies, which is interesting to me. So he he uh, he didn't he didn't seem to mind that in 2016. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, <laughs> he used them to to push his agenda so Trump would win. So it's just it's just bizarre that all of a sudden he has a big, it has an issue with them. Yeah, and you also mentioned something about a the a trade pact. Yeah, so there's a there's a free trade pact between Canada, Australia, and Japan, and I guess they've asked the UK to join our club. Although it probably upsets you because they left the EU and you want them to suffer. It's uh, good, probably good for the UK and probably good for us. So yeah, there's a few other countries in there because that's like a, there's a bunch of countries. It's not just between us, Australia, and, and whatever. Well, that was the but, list uh, I saw, but it could be more, yeah. Yeah. No, those are the big ones. But uh, it's it's interesting because it's the, that's the Trans-Pacific Partnership, isn't it? It could be, I don't know. Oh, the TTP? Yeah. Uh, I think so. I don't know. I think, I think that's the one that they're talking about, which is interesting because the UK is not anywhere near the Pacific Ocean. Yeah, I'm not sure that it is the TTP. It could be. You're right. They maybe need to rename it if they're going to join the... Or they used to be. They had colonies all over the world, so they just... Yeah, that's true. They could just say, the Queen's the Queen of uh, Australia. We're just yeah. coming in over them. Yeah. Or we Canada. CPTPP. Huh? The CPTPP. CPTPP, yeah. All right, well, that's it. Moving on to the next segment after that one. That was a... I need a, need a deep breath and a drink. <laughs> Hey, closer to fine. Moving on. Moving on, indeed. Do you have 30 pages of this as well? <laughs> no, no, no. Just a, a small, small little, little things. Just two. The first one is that nurses who were stuck in a snowstorm uh, traffic jam in Oregon with six doses of COVID-19 vaccines that were about to expire uh, went uh, door-to-door or rather car-to-car offering the vaccine to anyone they could who was stuck in the traffic jam with them. Oh, wow, that's funny. Yeah, and Although how great, it, I, mean, you, I hope that ID. Hi, yeah. sir. Can I jab you with this needle? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Stephen Colbert made the same, very similar joke. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah, he did. Um, and yeah, you you would think so, but 
but good for them for not letting the COVID-19 vaccine expire. Um, but when, when it comes to this person's like formal spot in line, are they going to say, oh, this is my second dose. I got the first one on the side of the highway a yeah, few months ago. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and then they're like, do you have any proof of that? What's going on? Yeah. Bizarre. <laughs> um, yeah I mean, I think that's better than letting them expire. Yeah, um, absolutely. Good for them. Taking the initiative. Last, yeah. And then lastly, uh, on January 18th, Nova Scotia became the first province, state, whatever, jurisdiction anywhere in North America to move to an opt-out organ donation policy. Good for them. Since then, only 1% of the population has opted out, far below the expected numbers of 5 to 7%, which is great that they moved towards it, great that it's so low, and I have to say, opt-out is the only policy that makes sense for yeah. organ donation. Yeah. Because the people that really care will go opt-out. But the reason right now that we don't have a lot of opt-ins is because people don't think of it, they forget, they don't know they have to opt-in, and it's not necessarily convenient to opt-in. And you know? Well, it's on your driver's license, I think, in Ontario, it's easy to opt-in, but the other problem is you can opt-in and then you can get overridden after you pass by the remaining family members, right? Oh, yeah. But, if, but with this opt-out, then nobody's, you know what I mean, they get, they're just going to do it. They're just going to harvest the organs because you have to opt out. So if no, if you hadn't opted out, they're just going to they aren't going to ask. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I think opt out is the way you got to go, and I think that should be a national policy because it could save so many lives. Yeah, I mean, I'm done with my things. Any you can you can use them if you want. Yeah, take them. Whatever. I don't care. Yeah. No, no skin off my teeth. Actually, it might be. Yeah. It might maybe skin off my back. You know, if that's what you yeah. need, go ahead. Yeah. I don't care. Yeah. Uh, I uh, I had a an interesting Saturday in Saskatoon. I I I did some. Uh, my trip got extended, which is why our, we still have crappy sound quality. But the I, I ran out of laundry. I only brought enough laundry for my original trip. So so we had. I sent some clothes to the to the hotel laundry, just three days worth of clothing and a sweater. So three changes, like two pair of pants, three tops, three underwear, three socks, and a sweater. And I got that back from the hotel and it was $97. What? Yeah. So I thought, and, and yeah, you know, the company that has me here is going to pay for it, but I just felt like that was unreasonable. I just couldn't, I couldn't do it again. So I packed all my dirty clothes up in my suitcase. And I found a laundromat relatively close to the hotel, but I took a I took an Uber there and did my laundry. But so I I told you know I, I let people at work know that I was doing this, and they said, "Oh, you're going to Broadway? There's a great Chinese food place right beside that laundromat. You know, you can have lunch there while you're while you're doing it." I'm like, "Okay, that's fine. That sounds good." So I went I went I started my laundry in the washer, and then I went to this to this Chinese restaurant that was literally right beside the the, the laundromat, and it was it was fine. It was old school Chinese restaurant, you know, with the menus that have like, are you a pig or are you an ox and all that sort of thing. Yeah. And I had some like Singapore noodles or whatever, and it was good. It was fine. And, and I didn't know the area. It's called Broadway is the street that it's on on um, in Saskatoon. I, I did not know the area. Uh, so I've been so down that street. In Saskatoon? Yeah, I think I've been down that street. When have you been to Saskatoon? That's where I landed when I went to uh, twice. When oh, I went to visit okay. uh, 
Oh, okay. I, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you ended up in, and you ended up on Broadway. Yeah, well, we drove around Saskatoon a little bit, got a little tour. Oh, okay. Anyway, we drove up to Prince Albert. All right. So we were. I'm on. I ate at this place. Then I went back, switched my laundry from the washer to the dryer. The washing machine. I've, I haven't done laundry in a while at a laundromat. I used the industrial size washing machine, which admittedly yeah. took a lot of laundry, but eleven dollars in change to run the machine. Oh jeez! Which, again, a lot. You know, it's sort of the cost of one shirt from the hotel laundry, but still. So I put yeah. it all in, switched it over to the dryer, and then that still that still takes a quarter, which is bizarre to me. Like you, you only get four minutes for a quarter. Maybe you used to get longer. I don't know. But so I put it all to the dryer, put a bunch of quarters in, had it running for forty five minutes, and then thought I'd I'd go for a walk around the area because I didn't know it. And as it turns out, behind a Pizza Hut and a Subway, that Chinese place is probably the third least interesting place I could have possibly eaten in. There is so many cool places over there. There's like a couple of uh, farm-to-table restaurants. There is uh, an Indian place. There's a Lebanese place. There's a, a pizza and wine place. Like it's, it's just a street full of fabulous restaurants, and I ate at this old-style Chinese place that had fine food. It was, it was fun. So... I went there last night, and I actually walked last night. It's not that far a walk from the hotel. It took me maybe 30 minutes or a little under. And tried to go to the farm to table, but it was full. Well, COVID full, which is 25% full. Tried to go to the pizza wine place, same problem. But I ended up at the Indian place, had a great meal at the Indian place. And yeah, that was it. That was... Anyway, it's just interesting that I had to... That was my little story from, from yesterday. Yeah. And now, the end is near. Burning thoughts. So we'll start off. It's just interesting. So I was perusing uh, 338 Canada, the polling website. Yeah. That I, uh, I catch up on every once in a while. And I noticed something interesting. Conservatives do better. And this, I mean, I think we know this. But conservatives do better in places with lower population density, which probably is the urban-rural divide, right? Yeah. You would think... And I think this also means, and maybe not necessarily, because every riding is about 100,000 people, give or take 10,000. But from what I noticed, this also kind of translates into pull up ridings with less population. So I, I was scrolling through this list of uh, so, you know ridings by population density. And the first time the Conservatives come in second is the 54th out of 338 ridings by population density. The first time they pull in first is... 67th and the first time they have a riding pulled as safe is the 87th the first 66 are all liberal and ndp with the exception of two block ridings yeah i don't know just interesting it, 54 that's that's pretty far down the list you know uh, yeah cities have always done better partially because of you know guilt money and 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 partially because you have uh a highly educated group, which is capable of very of of you know not that not that listen it, I think it takes some critical and and sort of not just straight line thinking but but like thinking like broad thinking to see how tax cuts aren't necessarily always the best solution to any problem and yeah absolutely so that's you know that's what. I think that's uh, 
what that is for the most part. And it's it's the same thing in the States. Yeah. And then anyway, last note, Newfoundland and Labrador, they're in an election uh, cycle right now, as we've talked about. And, you know, whatever polls liberals are going to win, doesn't matter. But one thing I noticed, the PC leader in that province, his name is Ches Crosby. And he looks more like a turtle than Mitch McConnell does. <laughs> That's impossible. It's I, Look him up. It's incredible. It, he's, he's got a very round head with a very thin neck. He looks a lot like a turtle. More than Mitch McConnell. Uh, I don't know about that. Maybe maybe Mitch McConnell looks like a tortoise. Ches Crosby looks like a turtle. All right. <laughs> well, I got to say, I I, uh, I was just watching uh, on probably the hockey game or something yesterday, and there's this company out right now called uh, Rakuten. Mm-hmm. And their ad, they take Rocket Man and change the lyrics to Rakuten. Rakuten, selling all my crap on the internet or something like that. And uh, it's just, I hope Elton John got paid a boatload of money because it really, really destroys that song. I cannot believe anyone with any sort of artistic integrity would allow that to, like, I hope he got to, like, I can't believe he listened to that first and said, yeah, that's all right. <laughs> uh, normally stuff like that only happens after the artist that wrote it dies and the family just is looking to cash in. I cannot explain <laughs> this one. Uh, well, we'll hope so. Anyway. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening, and we will talk at you again next week. See ya.